What's up, people? And welcome to the second episode of the Takeoff's Telehealth Podcast Series, where I'm psyched to interview guest Guy Friedman, CEO and co-founder of SteadyMD. Before founding the primary care-focused telehealth company that is SteadyMD, Guy got his undergraduate and master's degree in economics from Tufts and another master's, an MBA, at the Wharton School. Along with the academic education, Guy founded Higher Next, which was acquired by Proctor U in 2014. And Guy now lives and works out of St. Louis, where he came to speak at one of my classes at Washington University in St. Louis. And his passion for helping students and his energizing entrepreneurial spirit spoke to me, and I hope he does the same for you. First, to give our subscribers some background, what is SteadyMD and what is your mission there as CEO? Sure. So SteadyMD is a technology platform that allows people to form relationships with their doctor completely online. I think the key word there is a deep personal relationship. Unlike a lot of the other platforms, that's really our core focus. We have three different verticals right now, primary care, functional medicine, as well as pediatrics. But the biggest one and the most popular is basically a form of concierge primary care, but completely online. So quickly, the way it works is when patients come to our platform, we take them through a pretty extensive matching quiz, which they tell us about their lifestyle characteristics, health conditions, exercise habits, diet, nutrition, you know, a lot of different factors that affect their life and lifestyle. And then we match them to a doctor that's perfect for them based on all those criteria. Whether they're an expert in a certain topic, like they could be a expert in diabetes care and you have diabetes, or they have a similar lifestyle you're a vegetarian and they, they're a vegetarian. They've really studied the vegetarian diet. But multiply that times 10 across a lot of different factors, apply an algorithm to the doctor's skill set, and then we get a matching score that really creates a meaningful spark right off the bat between the patients and the doctors. Mm -hmm. After you've matched with the doctor, you have a one-hour video call with that physician, and then you're connected to the same dedicated physician on our platform via phone and video. But primary mode of communication is asynchronous chat. We have a really robust chat application, so when a patient wants to talk to their doctor, this open up the app, text them, hey, I have a rash, hey, I have knee pain, did you see this article in the New York Times, whatever's on their mind, and the doctor can respond asynchronously. It's a really great way to care for patients versus an episodic appointment or phone call where the doctor's billing insurance. This is just a free-flowing conversation between the doctor and the patient. The business model is the patient pays a monthly fee, and our doctors see a limited number of patients and do not bill insurance. So a typical primary care doctor might have 3,000 patients in their panel and see uh, 20, 30 patients a day and spend 50% of their time billing insurance. Our doctors see at most five or 600 and don't bill insurance. So they have a lot more time, maybe 10 times the amount of time a typical primary care doctor does to really develop a long-term and personal relationship with the patient. Yeah. I love the personalization there. Super unique model as well. I've uh, spoken about the chicken and egg problem that comes along with a dual-sided market like yours. On the one side, you have the companies you're selling to uh, and the individuals you're selling to. And on the other, you have the physicians you're trying to onboard. What structures do you have in place to balance the two sides? I would love to hear your thoughts and advice on this dynamic, especially in the challenging space that is healthcare. Sure. Um, I think 
we've interviewed and when we designed the platform, we actually listen to the doctors as well as the patient. So if you talk to physicians, especially primary care physicians, there's a ton of burnout and pain specifically within primary care. They don't like seeing patients 10 minutes at a time and spending half their time billing insurance. So when we come to them, it's a lot better value prop in terms of lifestyle. It's the same pay basically, but the lifestyle is way better. They get to connect with patients long term and just take care of them without having to worry about, oh, I have to make sure they come into the office so I can bill insurance, even though I could just take care of this. It's almost a, you know, a sigh of relief when they hear about our model. So on that side of the market, we have hundreds of applications a month. So on the doctor side, very high demand because we designed the best job in America for a primary care doctor. Like that's, yeah. that's really what our goal is. And I think we have that right now. The patient side is harder. You have to constantly be iterating on the marketing and we are really a new category of healthcare. A lot of folks know what telemedicine is from the urgent care space, press a button, get a random doctor, or they know what primary care is and they never use it because they never get sick. So when we educate a customer, we have to educate them not only on the idea of, hey, you should have a relationship with a physician. Also, this is something for the long term that you're going to have for your life and lifestyle. And they're going to oversee all and manage all of your healthcare. It's different than the primary care doctor that only will see you when you're sick. Yeah. And so I think the challenge on the consumer side is tougher because we're creating a brand new category that we have to educate the customer about. Where on the physician side, they get it in, in five minutes. They understand everything. So yeah. I think the, the two of the two sides, the consumer side is tougher yeah. than the supply side. So this new category, would you like that you're trying to convince consumers to onboard? We consider that more like preventative medicine? Yeah, I think it's a, just the we're just changing the whole concept of what primary care has been come. So I think there's this idea that most of primary care, the incentive structure is around when you get sick, they will bill insurance. So you get sick, you go see the primary care doctor, they bill insurance for taking care of you, doing your procedure or whatever. And so we're trying to educate the customer on this idea that have a relationship with a physician that's ongoing, a lot more touch points. And yes, preventative medicine, just like you said, is core to the model. But not only we're not only paying lip service to it, I think we're one of the only platforms where it's part of the business model. Yeah. So it's it's not just every primary care doctor probably wants to practice preventive medicine with their patient, but they can't bill for it. You know, there's no insurance code for keeping you healthy. Yeah. You can only bill for when they get sick. So I think just not only do we preach preventative medicine and long-term dedicated care from the same physician is just better for you. Study after study shows continuous care from the same physician extends your lifetime, keeps you healthier, reduces costs across the whole healthcare system. And so we create a business model that adheres to that principle. It's yeah. not theoretical. It's like part of the structure. So as part of the structure, I think we can really credibly say we're a platform for people that actually want to practice preventative medicine, which is pretty cool yeah, because it's awesome. uh, a lot of people value that, but they don't really have an outlet. to. There's no nothing to there's no system they can buy into besides ours that really has that viewpoint. Yeah. And going deeper into the consumer side, you sell to both like individuals and employers. When did you start selling to employers, having those growth initiative and how is it compared in terms of effectiveness to selling to individuals? That's a good question. I think um, individuals in many ways 
it's it's a different sell because uh, on an individual level, when they come to us, we say, here's the product, more time and attention from a primary care doctor. And you're going to develop a long-term relationship with this person that's going to know you, know your background, know your history. You're going to really connect with them. And they value what we're selling and they pay for it based on that product, right? Yeah. I think on the corporate side, you have to pair that pitch with cost savings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to credibly say, because they're going to have this long-term dedicated relationship with the physician, we're going to save on like the ER visit, which is an obvious one, specialist visits, lab testing, prescriptions, and the patients are going to love it. The employees are going to love it and really value it as a benefit. So it's just a different sell, yeah, a different pitch. You're talking to the benefits manager who hears pitches all day. Yeah. Where a consumer, we might be the first person ever to to say, hey, I want to be your doctor. We're breaking new ground on the consumer side. The employer side has heard pitches from 35 different telemedicine companies this year. Yeah. And then once you've, you know, created this relationship with the company, do you see any challenges in terms of getting the employees to onboard once the company actually pays? And have you had any like strategies to combat these challenges? Well, yeah, I mean, you in the employer space, this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but in the employer space, you can price it so that you're incentivized to onboard patients, right? So if you say only pay me yeah. for patients really. who actually use it, yeah. then you're incentivized to market to those employees. And if they don't use it, the employer doesn't pay. I love those deals because I like someone's use of the product and they pay for it. But a lot of employers do want to pay for everyone. And we do those deals as well, where the utilization rate is pretty good. It's definitely worth it for the employer and us. We just price it accordingly. Yeah, You kind of have to know your expected utilization rate amongst a panel of employees and then just price it accordingly. Yeah, super interesting. As a transition to my next question, huge shout out to you for giving free SteadyMD to frontline workers. Uh, Thanks. We we really appreciate what you're doing. Telehealth around mental health care and just in general has obviously blown up in the last few months and even years. How have you dealt with the growth within this space and how have you seen companies respond in terms of providing for their employees? How have you seen employees and individuals respond? Yeah, I mean, I think the... Like, you know, in the last few months, it's really highlighted existing cracks in the system. Yeah. So if you think about primary care, many people, and this isn't just our opinion, this is a statistical reality, don't have primary care doctors. They have someone on their insurance card. But if you look at the younger someone is, historically, like we're at an all-time high of people that don't have primary care doctors and probably never will. And so suddenly when you can't have something like, oh, the doctor's office is now closed, you can call if you want, but you have to wait on hold and then it'll just be a phone call with the primary care doctor you've never met, people start to question, hey, maybe I should have a relationship with a physician. And that's where we come in. And that's why we're seeing really high growth right now. I think most companies have telemedicine in the urgent care style. So they'll have a teledoc or doctor on demand through their insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're seeing growth too, but that's more for like urgent care appointments versus a true primary care relationship. Yeah, I think all it's doing is fast forwarding what was inevitable in our opinion, which was this migration towards, wait a minute, I need a relationship with a physician, not just episodic urgent care. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are realizing that now. They're like, oh, I don't have a doctor. What? If, not not if I get sick from even COVID. What if I just get sick right now? Who am I going to call? I'm going to call a random doctor? Or am I going to text chat a doctor who knows me and knows my background and history and knows my family? That's a really compelling value prop right now. So I think it's just fast forwarding the, um, the value prop that we offer and it's easier to educate the market on our value prop yeah. where uh, it would have taken us longer 
longer in the in if uh, COVID hadn't have happened. But I think we would have gotten there either way. This is just speeding things up. Yeah, for sure. And then just looking at telehealth companies as a whole right now, it's a pretty crowded space and looking to get more crowded. Are there are there ways that you can build off of each other and really like accelerate each other's growth? That's an interesting question. I've never actually gotten that one. Um, so I think we all have our lane, yeah. like the urgent care guys have, well, well, let's go even down the chain farther. The hymns, Romans, lemonades, they have their lane, right? Yeah. They're like, fill out a form, get a prescription. Then you have Teladoc, American Well, Doctor on Demand. They do like the urgent care style phone calls. Yeah. And then you might have one medical, you spend a few hundred bucks a year and you get a nice retail experience. And then there's us. I mean, we pretty much stand alone. It's not like there's not competition. All those people are competition, but we stand alone in our lane of long-term dedicated relationship with the same doctor. Yeah. No one else is really doing that, especially with the alignment part. That's our special sauce. You know, if each one of us can pass up and down the value chain, right? Yeah. I do think though, you're going to see a bit of M&A in each category, each yeah. slice because they're doing the same thing. <laughs> so it's like uh, in most industries, when you have eight players doing the exact same thing, a lot of times there's consolidation because you have to compete for supply or the doctors. Yeah. So I think uh, you'll see a bit of M&A in the different verticals I just said. I think it'll be more uh, horizontal versus vertical, like Teladoc's known for gobbling up competitors, and I think that'll continue. Yeah. And, then, and then on the lower end, the texting guys, there's going to be some consolidation there too. Yeah. I think what's really interesting and like allows for the different lanes is that there's so many different needs that you can provide for, like you're focused on primary care, but there's also just like you know behavioral therapy there's sure oh yeah there's yeah, outside of primary care too there's therapy and other yeah. stuff as well i mean the, the biggest categories for a consumer for telemedicine is therapy and primary care because more about the supply dynamics it's tougher to get the other specialties to do telemedicine outside their own little panel uh-huh. but therapists and primary care doctors are willing to try and experiment oh I, so yeah I, so like a dermatologist would not be as willing to go away from the status quo in that way? What do you No, think? I mean, they, they have a pretty comfortable lifestyle, yeah. right? I mean, they have the same pressures around volume, billing, the same sort of pressure there, but they make a lot of money. Yeah. So it's kind of more risky for them to deviate where primary care doctors, one of the lowest paid specialties within the industry. And so they're, they're more interested in experimenting. And also I think they feel a little bit more outside their, like they, they went to school to take care of, they want to be community doctors. They want to build relationships with patients for the long yeah. term and the system almost doesn't allow them to do that where I think on the, on the specialty side it's less of a leap you know yeah. it's just you're kind of you went to school to, to do surgery and you do surgery it's or you do dermatology you do derma, it's a but yeah. primary care really I think it's becoming less and less popular because of that dynamic you can't be a community doctor for the long term with your patients if you have three four thousand patients in a panel yeah. it's just it's a math problem it's not the doctor's fault at all it's just like simple math around reimbursements and panel sizes. Yeah. And again, coming back to that supply demand and balance in the dual sided market, moving on to the advice related questions. Sure. Um, what advice do you have for college students uh, entering today's job market? What are some key skills and attributes uh, that you see companies are looking for in new hires? I'll go tactical.
political versus strategic because you're all smart and you all have internships and you can all read about what are the skills people need. But I'd say a few things. I'd say um, if you're passionate about the industry, nerd out on that specific industry and know everything about it. So like read every single article. And I'd say like it's a lot easier to do something all day, every day, if you're super excited and interested in the industry, then to apply those skills to something just generically, right? So if you're really into robotics, but you're not an engineer, yeah. you just like think it's cool or you're into, you know, whatever it is, cars. I don't know what, whatever your passion is. I'd say uh, really, really do a ton of research into that because it's just fun. It's interesting. Know how the business works. Know how everyone makes money. Know the value chain. Read about every company, all the articles. And then I'd say target that industry for what you want to do. And then, you know what I told you, I think last time we chatted yeah. 50 conversations. Yeah. I say that a lot. Make a spreadsheet. Probably a lot of your listeners go to good schools or even if they don't go to great schools. There's an alumni network. Your parents know people. Get started with five or six conversations with people that know something about someone. Have your list of questions. Actually, and I think a lot of times, sometimes I'll get a call from a student and like, you can tell they're doing informational interviews because they're supposed to do informational interviews. Yeah. Not because they actually, they're like checking something off. Actually be interested in what you're talking about yeah. and really try and learn. And like, this is your career in life. So you should be really passionate about what you want to learn about and try and get to those 50 conversations. And I say tactically get your first five or six and ask each one of those people. Don't ask them, hey, is there anyone else you know in the industry? Ask them, is there one other person I can talk to that you know? Yeah. It's just like the minimum ask and they say, um, let me think about it. Just one person, can you name someone off the top of your head? And then they say, okay, my friend, you know, this guy might know something. They're like, okay, great. Can you connect me to him or her? It's a lot more focused than um, let me know if you hear of anything. Yeah. You know, it's like, and then it, once you get to 50 conversations, you should have at least a few opportunities. And then the other advice is if you've had 50 conversations and you're targeting something and you have zero opportunities, there's probably not that many opportunities there. Like yeah. you have to switch your strategy somewhat, you know? Yeah. So, so I'd say uh, that's some tactical advice to for entry-level hiring, I'd say. I love the you know, asking for referral or introduction advice there. Sometimes I have like hesitations in terms of doing that. Just like feel like I'm putting an extra burden on the person. Like, what would you say to students that feel the same way about that? Yeah, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're going to you're going to have to just take a deep breath and do it. And I guarantee you the second you like get over a little bit of nervousness about asking for something, you'll breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so I think no professional who's a nice person and is taking the time to talk to you is going to say that was a really rude question ever. I mean, I, I, I guarantee it. We're all happy to help and everyone wants to be helpful and feel like, you know, they're influential and making a difference. And so even if it's a bit of work, that's why I like the minimum ask versus the, um, hey, can you connect me to like anyone you know is helpful? It's like, yeah. that's why I like a very focused ask of, or say, hey, do you know anyone that works at this company or anyone that knows someone that works at this company? I really want to talk to one person there. The little project, but most people that have been working, they want to be helpful. And also we rarely get called. You know, it's like I'm on every alumni list for the schools I've been to, right? Yeah. And uh, it's not like I get called every three days from an undergrad. You know what I mean? And so I'm in startups. I'm 
I'm a, I'm a, you know, someone, you know, so it's a, um, it's a, d- don't think that you're like, if you're willing to do the legwork, a lot of people aren't, you know what I mean? So I think if you're calling around and networking, that's actually something people can't seem to execute on that easily. So if you're doing that, it, you have, a, you're going to have a leg up and just keep going to get to your 50. That's my thing. So uh, I think you'll get a lot of general advice when you ask this question. I'm giving you very specific advice. Yeah. Talk to 50 people, start with five or six and ask each one for one more and it's like the list builds, right? Love that. And then for geeking out in a specific industry, talking about like telehealth specifically, do you have any advice for students looking to geek out in that realm? Yeah, I'd say read everything you can about every company. And my secret, another piece of tactical advice, go on the SEC site and read the annual reports and filings of any company that's touching it. So right now we have like Teladoc, which is a pure play telemedicine company, right? You read their IPO filings and their annual reports. It's like a treasure. You'll you'll know the market better than like 90% of America yeah. if you do that. One Medical just went public. Accolade just went public. And then maybe set up like Google Alerts and Twitter Alerts and stuff for the companies and keywords in the space. After a month, you'll be like asking me questions I've never even thought of, you know, because it's like, a, but someone else has done all this homework and written like this annual report on the telemedicine market for you. Just read that. <laughs> so that's one of my little hacks is if you want to sound really smart, read the S1s and annual reports of companies and whatever, like let's say you're into cars, right? Read the annual report of GM, Ford and Tesla. It's like, okay, now you're going to know the market really well. So that's another piece of tactical advice I can give. Great. And then moving on, do you have any favorite books, movies or podcasts that have been big influences on you and just a, a great way to pass time during quarantine? Sure. I like business books. I like Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, really smart dude, even though like politically he's very contrarian to most of the tech world. But Zero to One is very good. Anything by uh, Ben Horowitz. So he wrote, that's about like culture and stuff and building businesses. And he's really, really good. And I usually don't like business books, but those two I really liked. And then for more just like, not philosophy, I don't even know what it is, but if you, you know Nassim Taleb is? Yeah, I've heard. He wrote Skin in the Game, Fooled by Randomness, Anti-Fragile. Those books, he has like five books in that really good, thought-provoking. I think about his books when I'm running my business. So uh, he like, you know, even, even like the Black Swan, right? What are we experiencing right now? It's a Black Swan event. It's something that no one modeled for, but happens every 20 to 100 years. And just it happened to hit, you know? Yeah. But it's a Black Swan event, which you have to kind of plan for, even though you think the odds of a pandemic are one in 10,000, but they're really one in 100. I mean, it was 100 years ago, right? And pro- probably the one before that was 52 years ago, you know? So every 100 years or so, we have a pandemic that shuts down the world. So that could happen in four years from now or 100. It's a random roll of the dice, but he's really good. So I would say I'd recommend his books as well. That should keep you busy. Yeah, for sure. And then <laughs> lastly, how do you stay physically and mentally fit given the high demands of your job? Ride your bike to work if you can. So that's one pro tip. Almost always riding your bike is only 10 to 10 to 15 minutes more than driving unless you're unless you're really commuting like unless you're commuting like 50 miles but most of us commute you know five to ten miles to work right so you can if you bike that you get your exercise in and then i'd say have a nice 10 to 20 minute workout you can do every day there's a huge difference between if you have kids or not and if you don't have kids just go to the gym if you have kids you have to do some hacks like ride your bike to work have a 20 minute like circuit you can do at your house anytime like i could do it between now and my next interview if i wanted to i'd say those are the two you thought i'd just give you general 
general uh, advice. I'm giving like super tactical, you know, <laughs> it's like, how do you stay fit? So yeah, and, uh, you know, eat right, you know, don't have snacks, like a ton of uh, junk food at the office. That's one's harder because other people are going to bring it in, right? But try not to have like a bag of whatever next to your desk, unless, you know, it's just like little things like that. So I'd say those, are, but you don't have to worry about that. You're young. When you're my age, you can write this down and send yourself an email in 20 years. Yeah. Remind me to eat. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. Thank you so much for taking Okay, time. man. Good stuff. If you have anyone in telehealth that you'd like to introduce me to, would appreciate it. It's not anyone. It's one person. One person. Yeah. Anyone I'm going to forget about. If you say, dude, I asked you for one. You can't do one? Then I'll be like, oh, God, I got to find someone for this dude to talk to. And he ended up introducing me to Samir Malik, who I had a conversation with a few weeks later. And we released that as a written interview. It uh, just goes to show you how long it takes to edit these podcasts. Uh, thank you so much to Guy for taking the time to speak with me and giving some of the best advice I've ever received. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at underscore the takeoff, on Substack at thetakeoff.substack.com, and check out the next episode with Salra Bansali, partner at Health Velocity Capital.